I mean, I should have died so many times. <laughs> we were we just had a little bit of rice, umeboshi, a little bit of dried fish, one bottle of sake, which went very quickly. Uh, and so I ended up having to climb further up this mountain, then back down, and then in. And so it was ugh, like mud up to here, and there's the whole like um, Wizard of Oz kind of like, where did that top half of a house come from? Because it's right in the middle of the road, and I don't understand how it got there. Welcome back to another episode of the Inside Japan podcast, which is sponsored by jobsinjapan.com, the best place on the internet to find your next job in Japan. I'm Charlie, and on this episode, I'm speaking with Matt. We'd intended to talk about how he came to Japan for the underground music scene as an English teacher, but ended up doing PR and his own consulting business. But his story of how he ended up surviving the 311 earthquake up in Iwate was fascinating, and so we ended up speaking mostly about that. I hope you find this story as humbling as I did. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Sure, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So you talked a little bit about,、uh, with me before we started this podcast about how you came to Japan, your interest in the underground extreme music scene. Tell me a little bit more about how you got into that and what sort of、uh, helped you to get to Japan so you could be part of that scene.、Uh, that's that's a funny story, actually. So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania,、um, in the U.S. So Pittsburgh is a very punk city. It wasn't particularly metal, and as far as I know, it isn't very metal now either.、Um, but punk, you know, is pretty good. There are a number of bands,、uh, Osrotten, Don Caballero, and a few others that came out of there. Anyway, punk seemed pretty good.、Um, and one of the, if not the, you know, kind of the underground headquarters, as it were, of the Pittsburgh punk scene was a place called the Mister Roboto Project. I don't know why they named it that, but. It, Don't think it had anything to do with the band、um, Hole in the Wall,、uh, in kind of the not business district, let's call it of Pittsburgh. No stage, you know. Max、uh, could probably. I mean, if you really crammed people in there, you could probably get fifty. Wow.、Um, so just filthy punk rock, right? And that was a great spot.、Uh, I kind of grew up, cut my teeth there.、Um, I've got a lot of respect for that place, and you know, kind of the punk scene in Pittsburgh in general. But anyway,、uh, after after a number of years, <laughs> I think, well, probably like a year or two, because I was fourteen when this happened.、Um, I, I mean, I, I had no interest in anime or robots or you know, kind of the typical. Um, things that often attract some people to Japan.、Um, that just really wasn't my thing. And I can't even remember the show who was opening. Somebody was opening a local band that I liked was opening, and I had not heard of whichever band. Well, I'll get to whichever band. Anyway, I went to a show totally unaware that there was a Japanese band playing. Uh, that band's name was Quill, Q U I L L,、uh, and they play a particular、uh, version of hardcore punk known as Power Violence.、Um, it's similar to grindcore,、uh, but that's a longer discussion on the differences between genres. Anyway, it was a really good show,、um, and there there's a lot to talk about that I won't get into, but it was it was a lot of fun, very impressive. 
uh, really powerful performance. And I had no idea I could say like, thank you, you know, but you know, they made an impression on me basically. And I didn't know how to talk to them, which kind of bugged me. Um, and so for some reason between, yeah, that, that band, that was probably like the summer of 2001, maybe between then. And it was every summer vacation, right? The Japanese bands, punk and metal and noise kept coming through Pittsburgh for some reason to the Mr. Roboto project, nowhere else. Um, and to this day, I still don't know why, because Pittsburgh's not I mean, it's not a nowhere city, but it's it's not on like the major circuit for international touring bands, regardless of kind of fame. So I got lucky, basically. Um, but that's how I decided to start studying Japanese, because I wanted to talk to hardcore punk bands. Um, and yeah, so that's my interest and the easiest way. Yeah, so I had a, a double major in history and philosophy, and I studied Japanese because I like hardcore punk. So it's not like graduating college you know my resume was like oh here's somebody that you should hire uh, <laughs> you know what i mean um and so in order to get over to japan as many people have done uh before me and since uh you know i took a took a job with the english teaching organization um and ended up over here uh in, specifically in a place called miyako uh in iwate prefecture uh, that was in 2000, I think I got there, when was it? I think it was November 14th, 2009, uh, that I arrived there. Um, fishing town, I think it was a town of about 50,000 or so. Very blue collar. Um, if you know where Iwate is, it's way up north, right below Aomori, um, right on the coast. Uh, and I was there until... April 16th, I think, 2011, uh, which should ring some bells if you're familiar with the uh, 311 tsunami that happened. Right. Uh, yeah, that that major, the the movie that everybody knows of the wave was that was my neighborhood, actually. You can oh, wow. See, yeah, you can see the um, in the distance on the far left, there's you can't really make out what it is, but there's like a little red sign kind of thing that's an NEO's gas station and I lived right past that um so yeah that happened uh and then after about a month of I can't say that I was a first line responder because that has like an official sounding <laughs> official sound to it but basically being homeless and shoveling mud for about a month uh my company at the time discovered that I was still alive and demanded that uh, I move out of a disaster zone and down to Tokyo, which I did. So. Wow, that must have been really scary. Like I, I came to Japan a year after the earthquake and even then, you know, people, the discussions about it, there were, uh, I think I was living in Fukuoka and there were some you know, refugees okay. at some of the schools that I was teaching at. And uh, I can only imagine what it was like actually being there and, you know, like you said, shoveling mud for a month or something after you after the earthquake. Did it, what happened? You do you, what happened on the day for you? Uh, actually, so I mean, I should have died so many times. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, it was a Friday, like three eleven, the day of the tsunami. Through March eleventh was a Friday, um, and in Miyako, I worked in 
two schools actually. I worked at Miyako High School and uh, Miyako Kita High School. I worked at Miyako High School Monday through Thursday and then at Kita on Fridays. Uh, Miyako was pretty centrally located. I lived a little bit on the outskirts, but not really. Anyway, it was like biking distance, whereas Kita was like a 25-ish minute bus ride to the north to a village um, that had become part of Miyako City called Taro. Um, and so I taught there every every Friday. And so Thursday night, um, I think it was around like 8 p.m. or so, uh, I got a call from my associate at um, Miyako Kita saying like, hey, dude, you know, we just finished testing and stuff. So like, eh. I don't really got anything for you. Just like, you know, take take tomorrow off. It's fine. I'm like, oh, all right, um, whatever. So, of course, I proceed to go out with my friends to like 4 or 5 a.m. to the local bars and everything. Um, and uh, so we do that. We specifically went to a place called Daichan, uh, which a friend ran. Um, and that was kind of comes into the story later this can get long i don't know how much you want to talk about this but um, yeah, give me the give me the uh compressed version like what actually happened on the day and what was what was your sort of reaction to the earthquake itself because i was eating you know. an omelet and watching the i believe 1976 classic movie network um when stuff started shaking also a lot of people don't know like three days prior there was a really big one that one scared the shit out of me. That one is when I ran downstairs and was like knocking because I lived above my landlord, so I was friends with and was like, I, I remember the day three days before. It was like maybe it was a weekend. Anyway, for whatever reason, I was at my apartment knocking on the door and my landlord just coming to being like, like, what do you want? <laughs> yeah. Like, dude, this is a huge. He's like, yeah, it's nothing. You'll you'll know when you're supposed to run, is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm eating the omelet, watching the movie, stuff starts shaking. I waited at least a minute. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. <laughs> Until finally I was like, okay, I guess this is what he meant. Um yeah. so I run out. Uh and then I mean a whole bunch of stuff happened, but basically right behind I I lived. I mean, if I ran out my door and wanted to jump into the ocean, I could have done that within 10 seconds, like <sighs> maybe, like legit, maybe 30 meters from the Pacific Ocean. Wow. Um, and right behind our apartment was a, uh, you know, a, a rather large hill on top of which was a temple called Zeninji, which my landlord was friends with the, the lead uh, head monk. I guess is the name, the Obolathong. Um, and so we ran up there, uh, stayed there for about three days, not necessarily because we wanted to, but because we couldn't leave. There was entirely too much rubble. We were trapped. Wow. In a Buddhist temple. And the city was also on fire, but that's whatever. Um, and so third day, I managed to climb further up the mountain. I had to go scavenge for food. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a disaster so, movie now already it was <laughs> <laughs> um and so finally i'm just like shit we got kids there was like 20 of us there were three kids a num most of the people there were over 90 years old we were we just had a little bit of rice umeboshi, a little bit of dried fish one bottle of sake which went very quickly <laughs> uh 
And so I ended up having to climb further up this mountain, then back down and then in. And so it was ugh, like mud up to here. And there's the whole like um, Wizard of Oz kind of like, where did that top half of a house come from? Because it's right in the middle of the road and I don't understand how it got there oh, kind of man. stuff. Um, I get to the city center just outside of the disaster. Well, I mean, it's still the disaster area, but like, I mean, no, no kidding, like muck up to here that you're just wading through. Um, and I get there, I go to the first Lawson, it was thinking like, oh boy, convenience store food. That's where, <laughs> of course, they'll have the disaster. So, you know, they've already been not stripped, but, you know, people are waiting in line and whatnot. Um, and, uh, I, I remember actually in, at the back of the line were two of my students from the school that I was supposed to be at on that day. Uh, and I was, or on 311. And I remember being like, yo, dudes, like, okay, good. You're here. That's a positive. Like what happened to Toddle? Like, what's the, what's the word? And I remember them just saying more night. I think two weeks later or so the first news crew that came managed to get to Miyako was an Irish news, what, RCS, RTS, something like that. And we went to Taro, and I distinctly remember there was, there was a Lawson sign still standing. That's it. Everything else was leveled. It looked like it was bombed. My um, God. Um, and so, anyway, Lawson didn't have any food. So I'm like, and it's like sunset, and I'm like, ah, oh, shit. I gotta go back through the muck to my temple on the hill somehow with no food and whatnot but then another earthquake happens and there's another tsunami warning and right then my best friend seiji shimoyama i can hear him from like from the distance being like matt you're alive like get over here and so then he's like all right you're basically forces me to stay at his place which is nearby they have stockpiles of food and stuff um and so from there uh we and there were seven or so uh, other people in, or other friends in addition to myself that they were putting up were also either homeless or somehow you know dis, uh, displaced and from there for about a month we every morning would put on you know the typical Japanese like workman suit uh, you know we had shovels we had pickaxes we had all that stuff uh, we'd run I, I ran food to the temple um, somehow I got a really big box of sanma like you know sanma the fish like they're like oh, right. large I, I don't even know where it came from but one day i just ended up with this big box of really fresh sanma and <laughs> like all right i'm gonna give it to the temple guys because they deserve it there's like a whole bunch of weird kind of can't explain it interestingly enough um punk rock actually factors into this in that um, before the self-defense force, before the Yakuza, before the police, before anybody else showed up, somehow uh, there's, a, there's a venue, there's a punk rock venue in Sapporo, Hokkaido, which keep in mind is on another island uh, called Counteraction, uh, and it's run by a guy named Cole, and Cole-san is the vocalist of a punk, hardcore punk band called Slang, which is quite large, and he's friends with some of our friends. And to this day, I have no idea how they did it, <laughs> but they were the ones, like the first responders from outside of the city to show up first with like 
grills and burgers <laughs> and studs and spikes <laughs> right? oh my gosh you know of all the things to shop with yeah 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 it was the weirdest thing um but yeah it's crazy so that how happened. quickly your life can change from you know i'm teaching at a school tomorrow and oh you've got a day off to you know scavenging for food and having towns leveled in front of you i mean that's uh that must have been crazy what did what did you think was going to happen at that time like were you thinking i don't know like how do i get out of here or you know, where where am i supposed to go should i go back to my home country or what were you thinking so the um that's a very good question the, the buddhist temple definitely helped with this <laughs> um all throughout it, every morning um the first three days anyway that i was there it, they conducted their their rituals every morning right at 7 a.m which involved like a gong right and they they invited me to sit in on it too and so there i am like a homeless um and of course we're listening to this, this crank radio in the dark by candlelight drinking our only bottle of sake that's how we found out about fukushima right and so it's like whoa wait a minute like what we thought the world already ended it's worse elsewhere um where was i going with this uh oh the buddhist yeah right so first day like 311 um shock basically you're kind of not thinking there's just like nothing is in your head uh yeah and so like i remember the night sky being extremely beautiful and clear that night despite the fact that across the bay that was the industrial area and all of the gas lines had burst and so it was on fire <laughs> wow um so there's that on day one so day one is nothing right mm -hmm. at the buddhist temple day two is that's panic that's oh my god my computer my guitars my amps my suits my refrigerator my every like how much does all of that even even cost like oh right. uh, and then you think oh wait a minute they said like the roads are totally dead and the trains are down and like we have no internet connection and the cell towers are, are busted we can't commute like oh can i even get out of here is that yeah. even possible um and so that that was like a super low point day two um and then day three it was when buddhism kind of kicked in <laughs> uh and you know kind of coming to a realization of like you know what like guitars computer suits like i, don't know. I mean it'd be nice if i didn't have to rebuy them but the fact of the matter is none of that was really particularly sentimental like in the scheme of things, it sort of doesn't matter. And, you know, I've got, I've got my people with me. We've got some fire. I've got a coat, <laughs> got a roof. Like things are pretty good compared to, you know, what it could be. Um, right. So there, that sticks with me today. I mean, that I applied that to even to kind of how I conduct business um, as well, which is, you know, to say like lean, agile, uh all of these things very much uh come from my experience with dealing with you know a i mean legit like the place that i was supposed to be on friday look it up on wikipedia if i remember correctly the the wave there taro miyako iwate was 39.3 meters tall oh my god <laughs> 
that right. if you had gone to work that day, it might be we might not be talking. <laughs> oh yeah, but I mean, too, like the bar that we were at the night before that got leveled. Um, had I not woken up earlier, you know, I would have been gone. When we were running up the hill, I remember my landlord. It was a married couple, um, and and wife Kazakul's son. Uh, we're like running up the hill with her dog, with her dog John. And she turns to me, and is like, "Hey, did you get your passport?" And I was like, "Ah, no, I didn't." And so I ran back down to get my passport. That's when I realized, like, you get you do the stupidest things in in like not panic mode, but like disaster in the moment right now mode, like. I grabbed my messenger bag that's over there, but I didn't put anything in it. So that's useless, more or less. Uh, I could have gotten my bike, which would have been great to have, but I didn't get that. Um, I got my iPod at the time, but it didn't have a battery charge. And I also didn't take headphones. Uh, what else? Like, I just, <laughs> just like, all right, I'm going to take that. Like, let's, uh, whatever, it's something. Um, nice. So, yeah. Disaster is kind of like make you an idiot. Well, you're not really <laughs> thinking you're... when you're in disaster mode, right? Like that's one of the reasons why they tell you that you should have a kind of disaster kit or yeah, bag that's why you should have a go bag. Yeah. yeah, it's it's not because it, it's like you'll be an idiot. <laughs> like, yeah, you yeah. won't become an idiot, right? right. You, you won't yeah, be able... think about what stuff you actually really need to survive. Like, okay, well, I need blankets because it's going to be cold, and I need you know, a gas stove or something that can run without electricity because there might not be electricity and, you know, two gas cans. That's why, that's why, like, like, buy, buy butane, butane lighters, not, not regular lighters, right? Those are far more useful than matches or, uh, like, regular lighters and things like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got my ghost stuff, but yeah, so, I mean, that was, it was an incredibly intense experience. Um, I'm still very good friends with, you know, people up there, second family kind of thing. Um, yeah, I can imagine that kind yeah, of thing bonds like, you together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one could say. Uh, yeah, but that's in a nutshell, anyway. Uh, that's that's how I moved to Tokyo. <laughs> mm. Okay, so tell me about that then. What happened after, so after that experience of basically having uh, all of your possessions and your life sort of wiped away, then you moved to Tokyo. Um, what happened next, like with your with your company, or did you then decide, like, okay, I'm going to do something different? Was there like some kind of life, uh, I guess, affirming reawakening of like, I I don't know what I was doing there in the first place, or you know what what happened after that? I mean, I wouldn't call it like real, but I mean, the fact is, where I lived, right? I was kind of I was comfortable, I was happy, you know. I was I wasn't resigned to it, but I was like kind of used to it, you know what I mean? And thinking at some point, you know, okay, business, obviously I'll have to go to Tokyo, but yeah, you know, I'm 23 or 24, you know, I, I got some time. So I wasn't really thinking too much, I don't think. So when I got down there, my company was very accommodating. Um, they hooked me up with uh I mean I had a job, so I had money coming in. Um, my friends in, uh, in Miyako have, you know, friends down here too. So there was very much, I already had, I had a really strong support system of people that I had never met. <laughs> I mean, my, I mentioned his name once, Seiji is kind of like my older brother kind of figure. He just made some calls. He's like, yo, my boy's down in Tokyo. Like, 
my my boy up here he's coming down like you're gonna get him an apartment you know you're gonna take him out to dinner you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna do this you're gonna do that he's good people like he helped out up here you know he's you know this that and the other thing like you need to like he's part of the crew like you know support him so i had that um it, it was odd you know nobody knows i mean to this day uh you can't explain i mean because you, you've heard the stories about maybe well you were in fukuoka right right um you but i'm sure you've heard the stories of like oh yeah tokyo shut down and people who lived in yokohama had to walk back from meguro or and all of this stuff and i mean i'm not poo-pooing that like that sucks <laughs> that's not a yeah. that's not a good experience uh but like it's not my experience and the things that you go through uh in a disaster zone like like we did in in miyako as well as kamaishi uh, the entire iwate coast uh uh, and Takada, uh all of these places like no matter what you tell people like it's just they don't they can't yeah it's not their fault you know they're not like bad for not being able to kind of fathom um, what it is you're getting at but like there's just it's a different level kind of thing so that was a little bit alien um i'll be honest uh but you know one thing and this goes back to the punk rock stuff you know uh i'm people don't think that i'm a particularly shy or in, but I, i'm a introvert for sure um and one reason that i'm really passionate about music in general but especially you know heavy metal uh the louder faster more extreme stuff um is you know from a young age that helped me get out of my shell like as weird as it may sound like i've learned a lot about etiquette in mosh pits (laughs) and and non-verbal communication in mosh pits (laughs) i mean a lot of it is right like that's the same thing with uh with everything is there's a ton of stuff that you can learn that's all contextual uh from from whatever experiences you have and especially if you're you know, learning Japanese and like coming to Japan is like, then you have to relearn a lot of that sort of like uh, etiquette and body language and everything. And it's, uh, I'm sure it must have been reassuring to have kind of like a similar um, way of being with the kind of people that you connect with in in America, also in Japan. Yeah. And I mean, I I had a band in in Miyako, our name was Kraken Strike, like the Kraken from the deep, right? Um, We were, we had fun. Uh, but I mean, there, there's no there was no real scene in most of you. Like in Morioka, there's a few clubs that I went to um, every once in a while, but like there's not that much of a scene. Whereas Tokyo, like, and very long story, but Tokyo is the metal capital of, of Japan. Japan's a very punk country, uh, yeah. but Tokyo has like a lot of the metal is is in Tokyo. So I was able to start going to shows again, and I mean that's that's cathartic. Um, that's you know not to get serious about it but you know there's a lot of psychological i mean that's trauma that we're basically talking about right right um, being able to connect um connect with people also you know kind of um chaotic energy you know in at concerts just you know the loud the feel of the bass and you know the performance and kind of being able to lose yourself in all of that was was i'm very happy that i had that um and that's kind of how i started i started meeting people again so I started bands here. Um, that's not how I started my first job outside of teaching English. How did, oh, I think that was Craigslist, actually. 
Um, wow. But anyway, yeah, there was there was an art gallery in um, in Azerbaijan called Subject Matter. That was um, they had a uh, like a fundraising campaign for for Tohoku for the disaster. Um, so I wrote them just like, yo, <laughs> it's me. <laughs> you need a you need a marketing manager. I was I'm the dude. You got it. Like, come on, you can't find anybody right. better than me. Um, so I started working with them. Um, and that's, you know, Tokyo and Japan, Japanese business in general, uh, is very much based on like relationships and, uh, face to face, you know, all that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, it's an art gallery, right? There's a lot of people with money coming through, you know, C-suite types, um, business, it's located in, or it was, it's not there anymore, but it was located in Azabu Juban, which is a very prominent, um, neighborhood. Right. And so through that, you know, I started meeting, you know, people of various uh, business backgrounds um, from there. Uh, well, I don't know, like, I could keep going, but like, is there what? <laughs> no, no, that's, <laughs> it's super pause? interesting, because you basically you went from going having this, like disaster, ch completely change your life, but then you moved to Tokyo, and you were able to, because of well, I mean, let me talk. Like, let me interrupt you and go back to you. You talked about like life affirming stuff. Like, absolutely, it was, and it gave me a mission. Uh, and to this day, I still, I mean, it's really my guiding light. It's like Tohoku deserves better. Miyako, the city that I'm from, like, I love that more, or at least as much. I don't want to play favorites, but at least as much as my hometown. Uh, and everything that I do, as roundabout as it may look, is with the intent of somehow in the future, if not right now, supporting Miyako, supporting Iwate, supporting Tohoku, raising awareness, um, and you know, making that a better situation. There's a lot of guilt. I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of guilt um, that I had uh, moving to Tokyo because we had so much more work to do, and I was part of that for you know the first four or five weeks or however long it was, and then you know, part of me was like, all right well am i abandoning this mm. in order to like you know it's a good move in terms of like oh you're out of a disaster zone that's positive <laughs> yeah but at the same time you know in my head there was also like oh shit like am i leaving people behind and so that even to this day is i mean i that guilt isn't really like i've i've dealt with that for the most part but the passion behind it the call it a mission or whatever of supporting the, um, you know, let's say less popular or less known areas, reaches of um, Japan, be that geographic or business. Um, there are, again, like the punk rock thing, I've, I've got a company um, that deals with Japan's underground music. There is so much talent here, but it falls outside of the radar of, you know, what's normal. And so people don't see it. I do all of this stuff with abandoned houses as well. And a lot of the time, those, they're not bad. They're just off the radar. They're just right. not the standard. And that's why they don't get the attention that they deserve. Um, like all of that goes back to my experience with Miyako. Um, right. And really want to make sure that the, uh, you know, the underserved but very deserving communities, people, organizations uh, that do exist, Right. It's not like, you know, we're not just talking about something that isn't there. It's just out in the ether or whatever. Like they're there. They're trying really hard. You're just yeah. not noticing it. Not necessarily because you're not looking like it can be difficult. 
And so a lot of my it work... Can be, it can be really hard for people. It can be really hard for people to actually... They, they don't want to look at that stuff. It's, it's you know, kind of... It seems like too big of a problem for an individual to have much effect on. And it's always... It's a massive problem. Like, I don't, like, you know, I would prefer that it wasn't like that, but how much effect can I really have? You know, like, should I go out there and help? Like, I, I think a lot of people would just rather kind of pretend it didn't happen or pretend it's fine now just so that they don't have to think about it because it's too traumatizing to even think about you know it's, it's, imagine for the people who are there this is like a really huge thing but for people who weren't there it's just like i don't like i don't want to imagine what happens. And that's fine too you know um i think a lot of the time when conversations or experiences happenings such as but not limited to <laughs> um the 311 actually you know what i it's 311 is kind of a blanket term right it's 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 an earthquake it's a tsunami and it's a nuclear disaster right um for a lot of people it is difficult and that's fine any disaster right like it's heavy stuff man make no mistake about that and if you're uncomfortable or somehow unable to deal with it that's fine you know um, and then there are some people that, you know, either it's their calling or, you know, for whatever reason they want to, or they feel compelled to somehow contribute in one way or another. Well, then, hey, that's cool too. Um, but yeah. I do dislike um, kind of the binary, I think that happens a lot with disasters in general of, you know, either you're part of it or you're not. And you should be, but if you're like, no, man, like everybody has their own capabilities. Everybody has their own um, thresholds for this, that, and the other thing. And this, again, very much applies to business as well. Um, so I don't, I don't expect or anticipate even, you know, people being interested, caring, uh, or otherwise being capable of contributing to the stuff that I try to do because that's that's what I do. You know, that's that's my calling. That's my thing. If you want to come on board, sure, happy to have you. But if not, don't worry about it. You know? Yeah, um, I think that's an awesome place to uh, leave this podcast. I know we we had a bunch of stuff that we wanted to talk about before, but <laughs> making this all about the that experience at three eleven. I mean, that was that's uh, an incredible story, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you survived. I'm glad that there's. Uh, you know, you're putting a lot of effort into trying to help those people. So uh, what are some things that people can do if they want to help out more or if they, you know, maybe they're interested in finding out more about what happened there and what they can do to assist? Uh, not, well, ah, okay. Um, Tohoku Raibu House Daisaksen. I'll send you a link. <laughs> okay, we'll put a link in the description. Yeah, is a phenomenal effort by my people up in in Iwate. Um, as so, it's in Miyako, it's in Ishinomaki, and it's in Kessen Numa. Um, and I'll make this super short, but basically, with disasters, a lot of people think about food and heat, and you know, not being wet, and all of these like extremely basic things, which are good to think about. But second level on what is that that triangle of human needs? Uh, Pavlov, right, the Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah, Maslow, right? Um, it's like community and connection, communication, all these things, right? And so once kind of the food situation got locked down in uh, Tohoku, uh, Tohoku Daipas Daisaksen started in order to use um, affected but still viable 
buildings, reclaiming them and turning them into event spaces. Um, so concert halls um, and things like that. There's actually a documentary that was released about them in 2013, I believe, um, by a group of Waseda University students. Interesting. Uh, so check them out. Honestly, talk to me. Uh, I can direct people to other uh, resources and whatnot. There's there's a bunch. There's Playground for Hope. Um, what else is? I mean, there's obviously you know you put me on the spot. I can't think of yeah. anything. Uh, yeah, but... we didn't know before the podcast that you were going to talk about all of this stuff, like that we would <laughs> basically fill the whole, you know, whatever it is, 45 minutes now or something that, about uh, this one topic. So, um, no, we'll uh, we'll put a link in the description to um, the organizations you've mentioned and also uh, a way to connect with you if people want to find out more ways that they can help. But, um, yeah, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You've been uh, fantastic. It's really interesting to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh... Yeah, that was a terrible sign off, but <laughs> <laughs> that's also amazing. That I blanked. <laughs> if you enjoyed that episode and you like what we're doing with Inside Japan, please consider going to iTunes and giving us a five star rating and sharing this episode with a friend who you think it might be useful for. As always, a huge thank you to jobsinjapan.com for sponsoring this podcast. And if you're looking for our other episodes, you can find them there and keep us in mind next time you're looking for work in Japan. Thanks so much for listening and see you again soon.